0: Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. Geobiologist Hope Jaron has spent her scientific career studying plants. Her new memoir, Lab Girl, chronicles her journey of scientific discovery from playing in her father's lab as a child to her groundbreaking research on trees and plants. It's an honest and frank look at the life of a research scientist. I recently talked with Jaron about her work, the book, and trees.
1: I often start talking with people about um, childhood and and was there a particular tree that they remember from childhood and and with an awful lot of people the answer is yes some people are still waiting for their trees but um can i ask you if you remember one <laughs>
0: yes uh growing up on the farm we had uh, we had a century old oak tree and a century old uh, pecan tree that uh, were in the front yard and both uh both were good sources of many 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 tire swings and <laughs> and, makesh- and makeshift forts that i'm sure i've apologized over the years to the trees for having hammered nails into into them making making my forts oh. <laughs> as a young child
1: <laughs> yeah 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 so so um, you probably didn't hurt them any more than, you know, if your ears are pierced or something like that, a couple nails here and there doesn't, doesn't do too much to a huge tree. Um, but anyway, so a lot of people, you know, will say yes. And, and they can't quite explain why they picked that tree. I mean, sometimes it was just close to the house, but usually there's an awful lot of trees and one of them just stepped out and they remember details. They remember how the bark felt and how it, how it felt to be under it and, how big it was. And, and I think really the only difference between me and and most people is that I never stopped doing that. I never stopped walking up to trees and touching the bark and looking at the leaves and all those things that you kind of naturally do as a kid. And, and you keep kind of noticing things. And so I wanted to tell the story of what is life like when you, when you spend, you know, decades kind of, just in that place, noticing things and 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 picking up uh, seeds and trying to grow them and and learning what what it's like. What is it like to be a plant as opposed to living as an animal, which we know what that's like. <laughs> and I wanted to share that story. And um, it's been really interesting to have people come back and say, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's." That's something I remember caring about, and it gives me pleasure and satisfaction to, to hear more about that story.
0: Your passion oozes from uh, uh, from the book in, in a good way <laughs> from from the from the story. I, you, you talk about you talk about growing up in your in your father's lab. Um, what was what was that experience like?
1: Yes. So the book is called Lab Girl because my very earliest memories as a little girl were, were being in the lab. My father was a community college teacher in rural Minnesota, and he taught everything from chemistry to physics to earth science to math. And, you know, he was the science teacher in town. <laughs> and in the evenings, he would go to his lab, and he would um, fix, you know, the experiments and the 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 equipment and set it up for the next day and take care of everything. And my brothers and I would go with him. And I just loved that place. I loved everything about it. He loved it. He loved being there. And we did stuff and it was kind of like play, but it was really important things for important people. And I just, from being very, very little, I thought, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to have my own lab and we're going to have lots of stuff in there. And me and my friends are going to do experiments. And it just became the driving Desire of my life, and it has—it's uh, <laughs> has led to some really interesting places and people, and and fun and heartbreak. And um, I thought it was time to tell the story, you know, to say what. What is this life really really like? Because I think people's images of, of maybe being a scientist and what what living that life is actually like are quite different, at least in my case.
0: Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but but just chuckle as I was reading, and you were so aptly describing what the life of a of a researcher and a scientist is a very good friend and colleague of mine here at the university as a research scientist his, his labs and his office are full of just look like a Sometimes a jumbled mess, and, and there's pieces of equipment that he's scavengered from junk piles and have repurposed because it fit a, a need that he has. And I just, I, the, the popular perception of, of what a science scientist does and a lab looks like and how it runs, uh, the, the reality is very or different than maybe what, what the perception is from the outside looking in.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, one thing that most folks don't realize is that we're constantly trying to stretch a nickel into a dollar. Um, and in my case, getting started, you know, when I was a younger scientist, it was particularly extreme. You know, we were, we were living in our cars and we were take scavenging stuff out of the dumpsters behind the engineering building. And we were, um, it, there was a lot of Uh, sacrifice involved, you know, both on a personal and professional level, but at the time we didn't see it, you know, we were just having so much fun and I always felt so grateful to to live this life and to think for a living, you know, I always thought that 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 was the best job in the world, so why wouldn't I do anything that it took to stay in the game? Um, and I was so lucky uh, to have people by my side that felt the same way and, ne- you know, never questioned, you know, what does this take? How many hours does it take? How much sacrifice does it take? We never thought twice. We just did it, and we tried to keep the faith that it would lead somewhere good.
0: I remember somewhere in, in the book, you you would written something to the effect, and I, I'm probably not going to paraphrase it correctly, but something to the fact that that the the academic and the book stuff is fine but it's really getting your hands dirty getting hands on uh kind of the practical side of things that um that you relish and in, 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 enjoy you think is that is that common among among scientists
1: yeah there's kinds of scientists. There's experimentalists. Actually, my husband is an experimentalist and he, I mean, I'm sorry, he's a theorist and he, he thinks in equations. You know, he can just close his eyes and think about how equations and numbers work. And he can, you know, he can be perfectly happy just with a pad of paper and a pencil and, and just those thoughts. And that's one kind of science. You know, that's really a way of solving problems. But my way is is more like working with your hands. It's almost like craftsmanship. It's mm-hmm. turning screws and digging and peeling things apart and razor blades under the microscope and all that kind of business is uh, i find that very satisfying is that you know we work hours and hours with our hands in order to in order to give rise to one photograph or one thought and if you put that together with a hundred others you might come up with something new you know so there are different ways of doing it but but mine is very very much about working with your hands And that's, you know, that's a skill that you can't always teach. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Some people are just good with their hands. But practice makes perfect, right? But, um, gosh, sometimes you meet uh, the different kids we've had in the lab. I shouldn't call them kids because technically they're 18 (laughs) and above. But every once in a while we'll get, you know, quote, unquote, a farm kid in the lab. And, boy, there's nobody better. Than that because you know, they know how to work with their hands and they know how to work. <laughs> they know how to work when the sun comes up, and it doesn't matter if they've had calculus or not. <laughs> they can do great things. I'll tell you that much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, has it gotten easier to do science and, and do research in? in terms of, of, of support and the, and the value that is placed on on the research you're doing? Or is it more actually, difficult now?
1: Yeah, it's actually gotten a lot, lot harder, uh, and it's getting harder every year. So if you look at the data that comes out of the um, AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Scientists, um, if you look at the amount of um, money, your taxes, that goes into... Funding scientists like me who wake up with an idea and say, you know, if you double the amount of greenhouse gases on a farm field, what's that going to do to the vegetables? You know, I have an idea like that, and I request money from the government to buy seeds and plant and and to hire people to make the measurements, stuff like that. If you look at the amount of money that we that we commit toward things like that, towards what we call non-defense-related research, that has been... a uh, Stagnant number in terms of the percentage of you know the total um, monies that we have available in the country that has been flatlined for um, about thirty-five years. So the different administrations and politicians they all talk differently about valuing science and and discovery and all that kind of business, but when it comes right down to it, the budget is is very flat and it's also very small compared to to a lot of things we invest in as a country and that's, you know, there's plenty of stuff that that's underfunded in the United States. But I don't think people realize that, that that's true for science. Now, the problem with that is that in 35 years, we've been training students, we've been growing as a field more and more. And there's constant, you know, pressure and enthusiasm to get people into science, turn people into scientists, make girls into scientists, etc. But the amount of um, resources available to, uh, and again, you know, just buy the seeds, buy the, buy the soil, buy the grow lights and, and make and, and pay, you know, people to have the job, that money has, has not gone anywhere. And so we're getting we're really at the breaking point now where we've educated, you know, a few generations <laughs> of more scientists. Since the big gains of the, of the, you know, right after World War II, and there's just not enough resources for people to use their scientific skills. So I try to explain that science, you know, in the United States is really at a, at a breaking point in terms of um, things kind of really falling apart and falling behind. That's what I've seen in, you know, being the manager person who keeps track of the books and funds the lab over, you know, now I've been doing this for 25 years.
0: Is that frustrating given the amount of emphasis that's placed on the on the STEM areas of education?
1: It, it's kooky. And, the, and the, the reason it upsets me is because when I talk to people, people whose taxes are being spent, you know, what they think about science, what they think about that we're a country that that tries to solve problems and has research institutes and has research happening at our universities and, and has labs and, and has people worried about, um, you know, what's happening to the environment and, and you know, pollution and, and do we need better medicine and stronger... You know, I find overwhelmingly positive responses that people... I think feel good about investing their taxes that way, but it's not showing up in the budgets that we have to draw from when we try to do this work year to year to year.
0: Well, I want to shift gears just a, a, a little bit. You, you talk a, a lot in the book about about Bill, your longtime partner and, and lab manager, and i got to say, I, I want a Bill too. Everybody needs to have a <laughs> Bill in their life, I think.
1: How, the question how- I hear that a lot. Now, the question is not what Bill can do for you, but is there a Bill who needs you? You know, these are people that... <laughs> well, okay, so we should go back to, to who Bill is. I, I think people know Bills. I think people have Bill's in their lives, and, and they don't... You might... This is somebody you might overlook if you don't look carefully. It's somebody that doesn't you know, necessarily like being around people, not, you know, quote-unquote good with people or mm-hmm. or cheery or outgoing, but somebody that does the hard work and shows up and, you know, loyal and sacrificing and just doesn't flinch ever, ever from from anything that needs done. And those are the people that really turn the gears of what makes the world go around. And that's true in science, too. And they're very invisible. And there's people like me that, you know, stand up and and talk about science and tell nice stories and things like that. But I wanted to tell the story of the person who'd been really the hero in this work and, and had been the, the gears of of making the wheel turn. And and that was Bill. And uh, it, it's, it's uh, I don't know, this had been the hero of my life. And I, I felt like, why shouldn't this person be the hero of a book? <laughs> and I knew his story wouldn't come out otherwise. You know, we write a lot as scientists. We write reports. We write um, articles. We write requests for further funding. But we never get to tell the story of who was important and, and how, how, what did it take? What did it take from within us to really keep this going? Uh, I wanted to share that. And to my great delight and surprise, it's, it's resonating with, with people from other walks of life who, who are enjoying the story. Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing. You write
0: about in, in, in working with, with plants that it's, it's difficult to tell the, the end from, from the beginning. How so?
1: Well, plants are modular in ways that we aren't. So you've got one heart, you've got uh, two kidneys. You've got two lungs, you've got one brain, and if something happens to uh, any of those things, then your body has a really hard time reduplicating that function, right? (laughs) Now, trees Mm -hmm. are different in that every branch on a tree pretty much serves the same role. And leaves are the same way, roots are the same way. So they're sort of designed to shed big parts of themselves and start over or to uh, spread out kinds of responsibility for keeping the organism going. And so um, what's the difference between a tree with one living branch and several living branches? I mean, is one more dead than the other? Um, it's one of the ways that plants are really different than people. And in cataloging those differences, I've always found that a really rich uh, fodder for imagination. And, and it's one of these things that, you know, when you tell somebody about it, you kind of see their eyes light up. And as an educator, that's the best feeling in the world. It's like, it's like being a magician and pulling a rabbit out of a hat, you know, just knowing that there are these things you've learned or, or discovered that you can share. And that. And that it it just provides this wonderful spark of of imagination for for just a moment that's yours to give away
0: <laughs> having lived here i see say on the edge of the of a national forest for 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 many years i've watched how for better or worse we as a as a as people have tried to manage push cajole control the plant life that is this living, breathing organism is, is that a good thing or bad thing?
1: Right. Well, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be either. Right. And that's part of the problem with why we can't kind of reconcile uh, how we feel about forests or natural spaces or, or whatever. So it's, you know it's like is having is protecting nature a good thing or a bad thing do we either protect it and leave it alone and never go there or do we do whatever we want to it and chop it all down and pave it or whatever and the answer is somewhere in the middle so that's the great challenge i would argue the greatest challenge of human civilization is how do you how do you coexist with a resource and exploit it at the same time and the exploitation of plants has always been necessary for human survival. You know, that's what agriculture is. That's what, that's what forestry is, et cetera. But there's a space in the uncomfortable middle. I think that's, that's our task, is to, is to live with the contradiction, um, to say that uh, every time we cut down a tree, we cut it down for a different reason, and we need to examine what those reasons are. Um, instead of saying, oh, it's bad to cut down a tree or yeah, it, we, sh- we, you know, we have to do this. It, it, it's, it's different to cut down a tree for, to grow food than it is to grow fuel or to make clear land for, uh, housing or, or for an airport or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I'm not putting values on those things right now, but, there is a value on both sides of the fence that's worth uh, looking at a little more carefully because it's a heck of a lot easier to cut down a tree than to grow another one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for, for you, you, you talk very passionately about kind of the, and explaining kind of the, the, the differences between plants and, and animals or, 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 or humans. Do we... Are there some things we share, or is it, a, is it mainly a, a symbiotic relationship that we have with, with plants?
1: Well, we're both alive on the surface of the planet. And I, I start, you know, with my classes and saying that all living things are solving the same problem every day, right? That we all have the same challenge to not die. If you're a living organism, if you're a worm or a person or a, or a tree or a, or a algae or, you know... That's your main problem for the day is not dying. And at the end of the day, if you're still alive, you've solved that problem. Okay. And what I think is fascinating is that plants and animals solve these, the same problem using very different strategies, using very different tool sets. Um, One of our big tools is to run away. If it gets cold, we go inside. If it, if it, gets dangerous we we get ourselves up and we move somewhere now trees can't do that if you don't like it you, you don't have that in your toolbox it's one of your options you've got to stay there and take it and I think at that fundamental level is where things start to diverge is where looking at staying tolerating feeding back into the system um, gets interesting and the important thing to remember is that This is a very different strategy than ours, but in a lot of ways, it's a heck of a lot more successful. I mean, trees have been uh, very successful on planet Earth for 400 million years, for hundreds of million years before anything even remotely resembling uh, a human animal (laughs) came along. (laughs) So how do you stay in one place and and grow to be the biggest organism and live for hundreds of years and, and things like that? In some ways, it's just the most... Amazing brain food challenge I could come up with to devote my life to, and um, that I could work for. I know I could work for decades and not get close to ha- being yeah. done.
0: <laughs> As listeners pick up and the book and, and, and read about this, your experience and read about the passion that you you have for this. What what do you hope that 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 we take away from from your work and your experiences?
1: I want people to realize that um, there's, you know, that their scientists, that their tax money that's going to the scientists is something um, that's well spent. Um, They should be proud uh, of how how hard we're working and how much we care. Um, And that, uh, you know, although this may not be a life for everybody, if it is for you, uh-huh. There's nothing better, and it's something that everyone can enjoy. You know, it's um, it's it, you know we don't expect every kid that learns to play piano to end up uh, performing in Carnegie Hall, and I think science should be the same way. I think every little bit that you learn about how the Earth works and how plants and animals work, and and which stars are close to Earth, and how the planets revolve, and all that kind of stuff. It, it gives you joy as a person. but the more you know about the world, the more you feel part of it, and that's the true the true reason to, to teach science in our schools and to our kids and, and to share it with each other in the form of, of books and and nature shows and all that kind of business. That's that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to spread that joy, um, you know, because we we search for meaning and. And um, we search in the wrong places. We, we search for money and power, and and we go overboard. Uh, and I want people to know that going overboard for your education <laughs> is also an option. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: Hope. What, what what is next for for your lab for your your research? What's What's on the horizon?
1: Well, we're building a new lab. Um, so I recently moved to Norway. Uh, I live in Oslo, and the lab right now is a big empty room, and we're working on the electrical. And that's always a wonderful phase because, you know, it's kind of, you're kind of dreaming about what it could be, and oh, it's going to have this and that, and then and it happens, and it's not quite that, <laughs> but it's something good. So, so that's a really fun phase that, that we're in right now. Um, this is lab number four. So uh, <laughs> in a couple of years, we'll probably be, be open for um, daily business again.
0: That's research scientist and geobiologist Hope Jaron. Her memoir is Lab Girl from Vintage Books. You can follow Jaron on her blog, com, or learn more about her research at jaronlab.com. In the author's voice is a listener-supported service of WSIU and Southern Illinois University. I'm Jeff Williams.